0: This is the MedTech True Quality Stories Podcast. Each week, we embark on a new storytelling journey with different MedTech executives as they share real-world, actionable best practices for medical device leaders. You'll gain invaluable insights into how these industry pioneers are successfully imagining, implementing, and improving true quality medical devices. Now,
1: here's your host, John Spear, Founder and Vice President of Quality Assurance and Regulatory Affairs at Greenlight Guru. Really enjoyed having a chance to catch up with Evan Lux. And Evan is the co-founder and CEO at Centease. Real exciting early stage med tech company on the path to greatness. Frankly, they've achieved 510K clearance. They have a very deliberate and diligent approach to design and development. They embraced right-sizing a quality management system along the way, and they're approaching commercial launch of their very first product. So enjoy this episode of MedTech True Quality Stories. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of MedTech True Quality Stories, a brand new podcast at Greenlight Guru. And I love these episodes of MedTech True Quality Stories because I get to talk to entrepreneurs, inventors, uh, executives at at med tech companies, startups, uh, early stage, who are doing some really exciting things. And today is no exception. Uh, Today, I am talking with Evan Luxon. Evan is the co-founder and CEO of Centis. Evan, welcome.
0: Thanks, John. Appreciate you inviting me on.
1: So you and I have been working with one another now for a few years. I'll just say from my vantage point, I have been super excited to see the progress of you and your team and Senti's, and really excited about you know, where you are today, but also what's uh, about to come for, for you and, and Centees. So I guess for those listening, uh, if you don't mind, maybe take a few moments and tell us all a little bit more about what you're doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So at CIMTES, in a nutshell, we've developed a device to provide intelligent surgical drainage following cardiothoracic surgery, uh, which is an area that has really been under-innovated in for a very long time. And so we think there's a big uh, opportunity to come in and really improve the way that uh, things are done. Not sure how much history you want me to provide. I'm happy to kind of. Talk about yeah. how, how we came to be, but that, that, that's that—that's what it is in a nutshell.
1: Well, I can tell you, my—I um, I think this is a, a applicable. My experience in this particular uh, clinical space goes back, personally, to my early days of my career, where you know you have this large bore, and and even in some cases a small bore chest drain valves or tubes, basically, pretty low tech tubes with some holes drilled into the side of them. That's I'm I'm being a little crude here, but I don't I don't think this is too far off. But it's basically stuck into the thoracic cavity, post surgery, post trauma, or what have you, for drainage. And my experience was on the back end that that tube that's sticking out of the patient's chest is attached to a very low tech duckbill valve. And and so am I am I in the right product space?
0: Yeah, you're close. Um, okay. Definitely on the tube side, and and it is crude, but that's the reality of what's being used today. Uh, the The difference being that for most of the patients uh, that we're seeing, um, the devices that they would have been using previously would not just go to a
1: ductal valve, but would actually go to a canister with a suction yeah.
0: set with, with a water
1: seal. Yeah. Okay, like a Pneuma pump or something like that, right?
0: Yeah. Um, the Plurivac. And Plurivac, yeah. 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 Exactly.
1: But th- but those uh, th- those things have been around. Um, well, I'm sure long before I've worked in the medical device industry uh, and and they're very low tech, and I'm guessing this is like the aha moment for you and, and the Cente's team like there's an opportunity here
0: yeah, for sure, yeah the the systems that are in use today, I mean they've changed a little bit over time in kind of the, some of their safety features and whatnot, but the fundamental concept around them is the same as what's been around for the past seventy years or so. It's basically you, you set the suction by pouring some some water into a chamber. And then it just continuously runs. Uh, and so the patients are, are then uh, tethered to that source of suction, which is typically the wall. There's really no way to control it. And the big issue that happens is uh, the, the tubes end up clogging off uh, because the pressure is not really being regulated. And yeah, so for us, what we realized, uh, and this kind of spun out of a different company that I was a part of a few years ago, but we realized that if you applied you know modern technology, digital sensors, software, electronics to this space, you could actually provide a system that does a much better job of draining the patient's uh, chest as they're recovering, which is a highly critical part of their recovery process. And then in turn, reduce their rates of complications and uh, lengths of stay. So that's ultimately the, the, the value that we're uh, planning to provide.
1: Yeah, it's cool. So, so really, the, the product that you've developed is, is all about risk, or more importantly, mitigating risk and being proactive instead of reactive.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Our product, uh, ThorGuard, is all about safety and and, and minimizing risk for the patient. One thing that's great about having a digital system like ours is not just the front end improvement in functionality, but also because it's a system that's got, you know, again, software and sensors built into it. It can constantly self-monitor and monitor the patient real time, all the time, uh, which is not what happens today. You know, with those old systems that you and I were just describing it relies on the nurse to come around and check it. And that's intermittent, uh, at best, it's gonna be four times an hour, but more often than not, it's around once an hour. So with our device, if something happens with it at any time, it, it will alarm and let them know. So it provides safety, provides peace of mind, uh, which we think will be great for the providers.
1: Yeah, very cool, it gives them more of a, a control rather. And, and I, I like the part about being proactive because you, know, if, uh, you, you talked about the uh, Situation where a chest chest drain gets clogged or something of that nature. What the the caregiver has to do at that point is I, I got to imagine much more stressful than if they got an early warning and said, "Hey, there's something happening here. Uh, take action now before it becomes a problem."
0: Yeah, exactly. And that is one of the key issues right now is that uh, not only do tubes clog off very often, uh, but when that happens, a lot of times it's blind to the providers. So most of the clogs are actually internal to the patient. And so, by the time uh, it's noticed by the caregivers, it's usually because something else they've they've noticed that the, the drainage has dropped off, or or worse, that the patient is starting to uh, have some issues. And so, yeah, with our device, one of the one of the features that has built into it is um, to constantly check for that chest tube patency to make sure that there are no clogs. And in the event that something does happen, it will let them know uh, right away. Um Very cool. yeah, yeah. So,
1: I believe you're you're you are you you have not done a a full blast into the market, you haven't done a full market launch. Uh, can you remind me kind of where you are in that journey to go full steam ahead into the, the total market? Where where are you in that journey?
0: Yeah, so we are at a very exciting uh, stage. We have completed our device development. Uh, we received FDA 510k clearance uh, late last year. It was a It's a device that, uh, you know, there's enough performance standards out there um, that we were able to, you know, benchmark and, and demonstrate Safety and effectiveness without clinical data. Uh, So now we're into our first clinical experience. And yeah, just like you said, we're not to our full commercial launch yet. Uh, What we've done is we've been very deliberate about uh, partnering up with some strategic centers around the country in order to get some early experience, get some initial feedback from people that we really um, look up to and and value their clinical input. That way, when we do launch into our commercial launch, which isn't too far away, uh, we can make sure that we're hitting everything
1: spot on very cool I, i'm looking at your um, your linkedin profile dude you're a smart dude i mean how many engineering degrees do you have <laughs> uh yeah I, don't, I i was a professional student for, <laughs> for a while yeah i don't know it was yeah
0: I, there was a lot i wanted to learn so yeah i, I ended up you know i started in mechanical engineering went to biomedical in graduate school but there was still some real technical things that i wanted to, to polish up and so yeah i went on for another master's degree in, in mechanical engineering
1: so one of the things that that uh, I try to do uh, on these podcasts is to share tips and pointers and and you know pragmatic advice to, to other med tech companies out there and we'll try to probably we'll hit on a few of these along the way but but not in, in addition to your your uh, impressive credentials from an education standpoint you've you kind of been there done that quite a bit now in the medical device industry so what are some of the things that you learned either w- with Centese or maybe even prior to Centees uh, about the med tech space.
0: Yeah. So I think the, the very first thing that has been really drilled into me starting with my education, but then also early into my career is to make sure that you're starting with the clinical need and that you really are addressing something because it seems so obvious saying it right now, but um, there are a lot of technologies looking for solutions. And to be honest, that is how Senti started. We actually had a technology. I was part of a different company uh, with a a similar technology in a different space. And we realized the technology could have application in cardiothoracic drainage. But the first thing we did once we realized that was to really vet that need with the surgeons and the nurses. And so, I mean, like I said, it seems obvious, but it's just one of those things where um, you can recover in a medical device company if you're a little bit off on certain things. Like if you know the technology needs some refining, that might take a little more time, but you can still get there. Uh, there may be some additional regulatory hurdles you weren't anticipating, but again, you can get there. If you start without an actual clinical need that people are going to be willing to pay to, to have solved, it, you know, it, there's no, there's nowhere to go from there. And so that's, the number one thing um, that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important, um, you know, because I've, I've seen a lot of companies, talked to a lot of, of aspiring entrepreneurs and, and inventors, and they have really cool technology and, and ideas, um, but it does seem like from time to time uh, we forget that at the end of the day, it's all about improving the quality of a patient's life and, and, and addressing some sort of unmet clinical need or addressing the clinical need in a novel or more unique fashion. And I think that's really important to keep that sort of at the center of the universe.
0: Right. And I think when you do that too, another thing that happens naturally is you end up finding opportunities in spaces that you may not have found previously. Because you know when things are, are technology-driven, there's a lot of, of flash and, and, and pizzazz there. And not to say that you know, really advanced technologies like robotics, for example, can't have significant impact on patients' lives. But I think there are a lot of areas in medicine that they're just, for lack of a better term, you know, unsexy. And so no one's really paying much attention to them. And that's exactly the space that Sentease is in. I mean, you know, surgical drainage is not a sexy topic. Uh, and to be honest, our device, you know, we, we have some core innovation in it, and we've got great patent protection, and it's, it, is, it is an innovative device. Uh, but it, it's, not, um, it's not a robot. You know, it, we're, we're taking fundamental engineering principles and solving a problem. So I think if if you know budding entrepreneurs use that as a starting point to, to look for opportunities uh, where you're actually you know trying to turn over stones in places that may not seem as exciting or sexy or you know whatever else is doing, I think there's a lot of territory there uh, to be grabbed.
1: And I'm wondering if you have any like tips or suggestions for folks on on you know if, if how to do that. I mean, how did you do that? How did you talked about this as a technology that? that sort of spawned out of another venture that you're working from and you found this need. So how did you uncover this, this clinical need?
0: Yeah. So for me, I mean, it all goes back to, um, Theranova, which is uh, the company that all this originally started from, uh, where I joined Theranova back in uh, 2012, I guess. And Theranova is uh, an early stage medical device development company that basically specializes in, in forming other, ventures, uh, once, once the initial feasibility has been proven. Um, and so the way that we looked for opportunities there, uh, I mean, there, there are a few different ways to go about it. I think the most effective was direct interaction with the providers as a starting point. And so we would have clinical advisors, you know, who we could pick their brains about and, and kind of see what was top of mind, uh, for them. Uh, I think, you know, the literature, it, it can be overwhelming. Um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, just staying Picking a picking a clinical specialty and, and staying somewhat up to date on, on where things are is another great way. But for, for us specifically, it happened because, like I said before, we realized that our technology had a, another application in, in cardiothoracic drainage. And so we, yeah, took that and ran, and ran with it.
1: All right. So once you decided to, to take it and run with it, the, I, I'm guessing that at some point in time, you're like, you're probably, you know, literally getting. know sketching different concepts and ideas i'm guessing you had some interviews with some different cardiothoracic surgeons i i I guess i assume that that's probably the the clinician discipline that's most involved with your product
0: yeah yeah exactly so that i mean that's just just like you said that's how it happened we started off with some really really rough prototypes that are you know fun to look back on now but a little embarrassing too just because that's how crude they were but you know for animal studies (laughs) and things to, to prove the concept We started rough and then, yeah, we were pretty adamant early on about getting as much feedback as we could from the surgeons, which, you know, keep going back to this, but one of the things that helped us with that process uh, was actually through the National Science Foundation grant that we received. We we were recipients of um, SBIR phase one and phase two grants, and they have a program uh, that they've adopted that I think is very, very popular uh, in the startup world, but um, the the lean launch pad methodology, where basically the focus is customer feedback and it's interesting going through that in the medical device arena because, you know, there were other companies working on other technologies that, you know, some of them are a little more consumer facing. Uh, and we had assignments, like, you know, go out and and get a hundred interviews with surgeons in our case and that can be tough. I mean, that's (laughs) a lot, it's a lot, right. And if your customer is, uh, you know, any, any consumer, that's not too bad. You can go, you know, hang out at the mall and, and, and try and track people down. But for us, it was tough, but it did kind of force us to think, okay, well, let's, let's do what we can. And so, yeah, we've wow. spoken with, with, with over a hundred now at this point and, and wow. yeah, their feedback has always been good. But again, I think that's the key is, is reach out to as many people as you can early on to confirm that what you have is, is real and, and use their input to help shape, you know, what the device ends up looking like too.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, um, I've shared this story maybe on a, another episode of a podcast, in the past, but certainly was with, with folks that I interact with. Like early on in my career, I was a product development engineer, which you know it's fascinating. I, I love it. You know, to to in some cases literally get a cocktail napkin sketch from from a doctor or from a nurse. that says, "Hey, yeah, right. do this." Or so there were a couple of cases where um, the the doctor that I was working with. I don't, you know, assembled parts and pieces that they had laying around, and they they made a really really crude prototype, and they would send it to me and say, hey, can you do this? And, and you know, I, I would my mindset, you know, in naive younger days would be like, I'm an engineer, of course I can, I could do anything, right? Yeah, and, right, right. Um, and I, but I uh, let's say I I didn't do it well the first few times because it didn't click for me. And and the reason I didn't do it well is in those early days I would just take their uh, crew prototype or or their cocktail napkin sketch and more or less figure out how To optimize the design and and make it so that it's something that we can manufacture with with a little bit of scale, right? Um, I I didn't put a lot of emphasis on that front end uh, user feedback and input into the process and so I would go through the full design and development process in some cases get 510k clearance and then we would launch this thing and it would launch with a thud because we basically designed a product for one user. We didn't factor right. in all the other users. So I got to imagine that, that that was probably invaluable to get uh, data points from over 100 people. And I can imagine it was probably also challenging because you're trying to get some sort of consensus. I mean, how, how do you weigh all of the feedback and input that you're getting from 100 different data points?
0: Right, right. I mean, that is, that is the tough Part. and I mean, so for us, it was you know very valuable to have that initial surge of input I and mean, because I think we had a few months to do that, and it was overwhelming because yeah you you get conflicting feedback uh, and so that's where I don't have a good answer as far as how you navigate that, but you just have to start to try and pick up on patterns or trends that kind of come out of of those interviews. you know one thing that we've noticed is that a lot of the the younger surgeons in our particular space are more concerned with using smaller tubes, which is something that our device enables. Not to say there aren't plenty of, you know, later career surgeons that also have that um, that same mentality. But for the most part, when we look at kind of all these data points now, that's one thing that has, has emerged. And so when we look at um, you know, key opinion leading surgeons to try and partner with on that particular aspect where we want to really emphasize the, the, you know, the, the patient's pain and the, the minimally invasive aspect of it, that, you know, that's something that has come up. But yeah, it is tough because uh, at the end of the day, you are—if you're speaking to enough people, you're going to have feedback that flatly contradicts what you end up doing. <laughs> so yeah, it can be tough, and you just have to—you have to figure out, you know, who are the people that are the are the most, I guess, relevant and and have the you know the, the most reliable input for you, and, and run with it.
1: And, and I'm—I got to imagine that prototypes were were probably a, a very. Um... Uh, probably a, a very important part of that whole iteration process as you're trying to discover and uncover things. Can you maybe speak a moment about uh, how early and often and frequently you would would uh, create some sort of prototype or even if it was kind of a, you know, more of a form model rather than a functional model, what role did prototyping play in this process?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. They, I mean, prototypes have, have <laughs> played a huge role. Um, again, kind of you know, speaking in, in the context of using them for customer feedback, um, one of the first prototypes we ever built up, which I know, this must have been maybe three or four years ago, was a literal black box prototype where we <laughs> had a, a rectangular you know, block that we thought would be about the size of our device. Uh, and we just took that to uh, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons trade show. In order to have something in our hands, because it just, you know, even though it was, like I said, literally a, a black box, it, it, it still at least connected a couple of dots. So when we sat down with surgeons and said, hey, we're thinking about making this thing and it'll be about this size and it'll you know be on patient's bedside and yada, yada. That I think helped us to have more substantive conversations than if it would have been just totally conceptual or even a sketch. So that was the first time we ever, you know, did that. But then similarly, these uh, these conferences have played a big role, I guess, now that I'm thinking back on it, because a couple of years later, we had a very polished version of the device that we had got feedback on that was a black box originally, and now we were ready to go and and get their feedback on this. But we also built up um, another version of the device based on some feedback we'd heard from our advisors that was more full featured and and it just it was a little diff- it was different. It, it had it had some extra things to it that we thought could be valuable. And when we took both of those prototypes, we were surprised by the feedback because everybody basically told us, don't waste your time with that one, even though it looked much more refined is that this is a thing that we want. Um, and so it was a huge pivot for us where we actually changed the scope of what we were doing. And, and I got to put a disclaimer in there that you do have to be cautious of feature creep and you can't always just continue adding features over time, but this was more of a fundamental shift for us. And it really, led us to the product we've we've now gotten clearance for and will be launching soon. Um, If we hadn't done that, uh, that first product, I think would have missed the mark and I wouldn't have, you know, a whole lot of confidence in it.
1: Yeah, very important. important. That's great to share. And uh, I want to take a short pause here for a moment, but uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the role regulations and quality systems. And all those sorts of things play in. But folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking with Evan Lux. And Evan is the co-founder and CEO at Centise. Centise is uh, an early stage med tech company. They've developed a really cool product. And uh, it's called the ThorGuard. It's an intelligent surgical drainage system. Uh, takes something that historically uh, for decades has been very low tech and applied a little bit of intelligence to the to the procedure, which allows the, the caregiver, the nurse, the doctors to be proactive, especially if there are you know patient complications that arise from from the use of the, this type of product. So really cool. Um, Of course, you're listening to MedTech True Quality Stories. Uh, You know, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, tuning in. I want to encourage you to check out all the other episodes of MedTech True Quality Stories as well as the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, We have been... In the Global Medical Device Podcast, we have done well over 100 episodes at this point in time. It's a lot of information. So wherever you're listening to uh, MedTech True Quality Stories... Just do a search for global medical device podcast. It is the number one podcast in the medical device industry. So check it out. So um, Evan, so you and I uh, here's what one of the things I truly appreciate about you um, it, it is you understood early on in uh, the the Senti's journey that there's a there's an important role that quality. quality management systems design controls risk, you know regulatory compliance if you will You really seem to embrace how important this was as part of that journey Uh, So it's a little of a open-ended question But can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that on why this clicked for you? Why this was so important or obvious to you as part of this journey with Sentes?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. So we Decided to you know really make sure that we had our quality system up and we were, were, you know, following all the core elements that we needed to be very soon after we realized that we were going to be, you know, moving forward with this this product. Uh, And I think the main reason, there's two main reasons, I guess. The first is just that doing the work as you go is so much easier than trying to do it after the fact, right? To play catch up, even in the development phase. I mean, when it comes to developing your design inputs, uh, capturing user needs, you know, following a procedure, getting in the rhythm of that, to try and do that, I, I think it's it's easy to kick that can down the road, uh, and it can seem like it's saving time in the moment, but yeah, just to try and play catch up, I think can be very difficult, if not impossible. So that's the number one thing. It's just you know, it's about ultimate overall time savings. once you actually get the product um, to market. But I think the other piece of it is just the product, the quality of the product, um, because by going through all the quality procedures that you have to to be you know, compliant with all the various regs, uh, you're, you're sort of forced to follow a system that, that makes you think through all the things that matter for medical device development. And so uh, for us, you know, making sure that we had those user needs and design inputs again er- early on, and made sure those were the right ones, it, it helps you to make sure that the product you're developing is the product that you you know that will be commercially viable uh whereas if you don't do that and you and you develop the product too far along and then try to play catch up there what you might realize is that the product itself actually isn't the right product and it needs to get redesigned so i think there's a lot of uh benefit to doing it i think it ultimately ends up saving
1: time in the long run but it just
0: leads to better quality as well better quality
1: product Uh, yeah i Totally agree with you. And, and let me um, share something that I hear from time to time from folks that, you know, maybe maybe they haven't been through the medical device uh, process, design development process before. Maybe they haven't you know, worked in any sort of uh, regulated environment before, but they, you know, they're aspiring entrepreneurs and inventors and startups. The, the scenario is this, uh, they'll say, well, you know, we're not really to, ready to, to formalize our uh, design control practices yet you know we're we're still iterating on the design and and you know we've got an animal study coming up in a few weeks so you know we don't think that there's a lot of value in formally documenting our design and development activities at this point in time w- what would you say to someone with that sort of mindset
0: i mean like i said i think it, it, to try and it, ultimately if it, if it's if it's valuable um, effort that's being done and it ends up leading to something that is used in the future. So if you know that design review is is ultimately what changes the direction of a product, and that you know goes forward, you're going to need those documented at some point. And so it's much easier just to do it at the time uh, versus later on. Uh, I think that a lot of times the the thought is that you know you don't need to go through these um, jump through these hoops because it's still conceptual and we don't know if it's actually going to, you know, be the thing we work on. And that is fine up until a point. I I agree. You don't want to unnecessarily slow down like early, early R and D. But if it's something that you think has a good chance of moving forward, then you should treat it as though it will. And so I just think, you know, putting the practices in place uh, is, is the best way to go. I mean, the other thing that you, you know, people try to do, I think, is to try and, switch systems or or, or 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 the way they do things um, after the fact but that can also be a very painful process and so um, yeah it's just it's, it's an investment right it's something that you need to yeah do early on pay, pays pays off down the road
1: yeah I think you know the, the, sometimes the folks who offer that counter opinion are, are concerned that they'll be restricted or constrained or that they will create a lot uh, more busy work for themselves uh, by entering into some sort of design, quote, design control situation. You know, m- my experience has is, is actually been the opposite of that, but it's, it's hard to conceptualize that and, unless you kind of have this vision of where you want to go. Um, there's a gentleman that I talked to recently. He, he said it really well, specifically on the construct or a, a framework to think about design control is to have an idea of where you want to end up and build your system and your stru- your infrastructure and your quality system and all those sorts of controls, you know, control isn't a bad word here. It's just, it's, it's a, a time or a way to kind of incorporate some checks and balances, but to design it in a way that, that allows you to get to where you want to go. And I, and I think, you know, things like quality, regulatory compliance, quality management systems, design control risk, sometimes those are perceived as dirty words <laughs> in the industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll gauge your reaction on that.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think I mean, maybe part of it is a misconception around um, the scope of what's needed early on, because I totally agree. I mean, it can be overwhelming to look at, um, you know, the entire QSR uh, relevant to this or, or, you know, the ISO standard. It's, but what people, I, guess, I think sometimes miss, um, or maybe it's overlooked as a, as a strategy that can be used is is to you know build the quality system out as the project and company progress, right? Because you know when you first are developing the product, you don't need to have your SOPs for you know post market surveillance. Um, and so I think it's just more about understanding how much you do need to bite off early on and not getting into the weeds. Um, because yeah, if you try to do that, then I then I think it is unnecessary burden. Um, so yeah, maybe if, I don't know, we just, we need a way to be able to carve out exactly what's needed at each phase of development. Maybe that's something that, um, that you guys at Greenlight can, can tackle for us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Um, that's, that's really, uh, in alignment with our philosophy and our approach is to always be cognizant of right-sizing your QMS and to your right. point, right, right. Uh, what you need when you're in early development is from the right-sized QMS is way different than when you're, preparing for commercial launch. But to look at this as an evolution, something that just like your product design, it's going to evolve over time. So should your quality management system. So absolutely. Man, Evan, there's so many other areas that, that I can dive into. But I guess in the interest of, of time, uh, your time and our listeners time, any last minute tidbits or thoughts or tips or pointers that, that you think that are really, really important that we haven't covered yet?
0: I mean, when you invited me to do this, I was thinking back a little bit, if there was anything I could share, and I think we've covered a lot of it. The only other thing that I had, had kind of thought through was, again, sort of more for first time entrepreneurs potentially, but I, I think going into medical device development and especially thinking about you know regulatory filings, it can seem like this unsurmountable hurdle and you're basically having to do everything from scratch. Uh so for those that are in the industry, it, it'll probably seem obvious, but for those who, who haven't been here very long, there are, I think it's rare to be working on a, a product where there aren't some very significant starting blocks that you can use as you work towards your regulatory uh filing. Uh whether it's FDA's um guidance documents, um, you know, you can you can request 510Ks that others have submitted for similar products through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, there's, there's ways to base, you know, to have a very solid starting point where, you know, yes, you're having to obviously, um, fill in the gaps and and show that your device specifically is safe and effective. But when it comes to structurally, you know, mapping out what that filing is going to look like and what the strategy is going to be, I, I think a huge percentage of it can be piecemeal together or or, you know, started with from other things that are already out there. So if you feel like you're, you know, getting ready to work on a project and, and you just feel like the regulatory uh, burden is 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 huge, um, I would just take a step back and try to dig into as many resources as you can that are already out there because there are a lot of them.
1: Yeah, that's a great tip. And Evan, I want to thank you so much for taking a few moments to chat with me today. Folks have been talking with Evan Luxon. Again, he's the co-founder and CEO at Centees. Check them out, com. C-E-N-T-E-S-E really exciting things that they're doing and I'm sure this is just the beginning of a long list of other uh, projects and products that they'll be developing so really an exciting company to pay attention to so Evan again thank you
0: yeah cool thank you John appreciate it
1: and as uh, Evan and I have been chatting today I mean right-sizing your QMS yeah I think that's really important I think that's something that The all medical device companies, whether you're uh, a startup or you've been doing this for decades, that is always important to keep front and center. You want to make sure that, that what you have in place is appropriate and commensurate for the type and stage of company that you are. And this is what we do at Greenlight Guru. We have an EQMS software platform designed specifically for and only for the medical device industry. And guess what, folks? It was designed by actual medical device professionals, people who have been there, done that. Before. So, you're working with experts when you work with Greenlight Guru. And if you're interested in learning more about the EQMS platform that we have, as well as the specific workflows for managing design controls and risk and design reviews, as well as documents and all the post market quality events, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more, and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. So, as always, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy lives to listen to this episode of MedTech True Quality Stories.